Due to the sensitive nature of today's material, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of natural disasters, negligence, and death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The morning of May 31, 1889, John Park looked out the window to see an onslaught of rain. He had become accustomed to the storms in the mountains surrounding the small city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. But something about this morning was different. It had been raining for the past two days and showed no signs of letting up. And for Park's work, the excessive rain mattered. As the resident engineer at the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, he was responsible for the city's nearby dam, which sat high in the hills above town. He thought it best to check on the water levels, just in case they had risen too high. So Park headed out into the torrential downpour. When he arrived at the South Fork Dam, he was met with a dreadful sight. The dam's water sat at a dangerous level. A few feet more, and it would surely flood. With haste, John raced down the hill to warn the residents of the valley below that they should flee immediately. But it was too late. Water seeped out so intensely that the dam overflowed. And then the barrier completely broke. Back at the dam... John watched in horror as 20 million tons of water crashed down onto the city below. In a matter of minutes, thousands of people would be dead, making it one of the worst single-day disasters in American history, the Johnstown Flood. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Johnstown Flood, one of the deadliest disasters in American history, placing it alongside catastrophes like the San Francisco earthquake and Hurricane Katrina. The flood killed over 2,000 people in a Pennsylvania steel town east of Pittsburgh. This week, we'll cover the progressive town of Johnstown, its industries, key players, and the excitement that lay ahead for its growth. Then, we'll walk through the circumstances surrounding the catastrophic flood, an event that would drain residents' hopes for a brighter future. Next time, we'll tackle some of the conspiracy theories that arose in the aftermath of the flood, including that the flood was a natural act of God. We'll also consider whether the powerful business tycoon Andrew Carnegie or other South Fork Club members were really the ones to blame. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In the mid-1800s, Johnstown, Pennsylvania was a quiet community about 60 miles outside of Pittsburgh. With a population of around 3,000 people, it functioned as a small outpost to trade goods and services, nothing that garnered much attention on a national level, until Johnstown got its first canal. The canal provided a better means of transport between Johnstown and bustling Pittsburgh, ushering in the beginning of Johnstown's industrial boom. Businesses flocked to the area, embracing cheaper land and this new way to export goods. There was only one problem. The canal had water shortages almost every summer. A lack of water led to failed operations, which was especially detrimental in warm seasons when the city did more trading. To solve for this, Johnstown decided to build a dam 14 miles northeast of the city, in the Allegheny Mountains near the South Fork Creek. It would hold enough water to keep the canal open year-round, even in the middle of a dry spell. Johnstown's head engineer decided an earth dam would be the best option, something built using layers of rock, clay, and natural soil, which would protect against rain. A rock spillway at the dam's eastern edge would let out excess water. Per his specifications, the dam would sit at 850 feet long and 62 feet high and be built on a hill overlooking the valley. With the town's approval, in 1840, construction began on the South Fork Dam. The process was tedious. While it's not exactly clear why, it seemed like inadequate government financing certainly added to construction issues. Plus, the state's attention span was angled in other directions. As the dam was being constructed, the state's largest railroad set up a bold expansion route over the mountains, 
which required a lot of state funding and steel. The dam became an afterthought. Pennsylvanians might not have forgotten about the construction entirely, but their excitement appeared to wane, and possibly their oversight. It took over a decade to complete, and changed hands so many times, it's hard to tell how many different laborers were involved in the project. In 1857, five years after it was finished, the dam was purchased by the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. However, under its ownership, the dam went untouched for another 22 years. This neglect caused minor breaks within the dam's infrastructure. Perhaps it wasn't just negligence that caused these early issues, though. Allegedly, some of the town's residents used the dam's accessibility for their own benefit. There were rumors some stole lead from the dam to use on other steel projects. This supposedly eroded the pipes, resulting in leaks. While they did cause minor downstream flooding, the leaks were largely inconsequential, since the dam wasn't even half full. Each time one occurred, the Pennsylvania Railroad Company would just bring in laborers to help patch leaky areas and move on. Despite the minor issues, the dam did, in fact, work as originally intended, serving the economic needs of the town. Thanks to trade along the railroad and canal, by the 1860s, Johnstown had more export opportunities than ever, which meant more business. Steel mills flourished, jobs were plentiful, and Irish, German, and Welsh immigrants flocked to the city in droves. With the increase in job production, the community soon grew to 10,000 people. By the 1870s, Johnstown had its first hospital, church, saloon, and even its own newspaper, the Johnstown Tribune. It was a progressive town, rich in iron and coal. Residents were hopeful for their future. But as is often the case with economic growth, this prosperity didn't immediately trickle down to laborers or necessarily bring them safe working conditions. Men put in 10 to 12 hour days, six days a week in steel mills that caused many injuries and deaths. Labor disputes were common as residents looked for more from their wealthy employers. But the mill owners didn't make a lot of changes. Demand for steel was high, and they knew it, so they focused on the money coming in. Residents were left working in hazardous conditions. Still, the townspeople were hardworking with a sense of pride. Everyone wanted to benefit from a piece of the Gilded Age prosperity, especially real estate broker and railroad contractor Benjamin Ruff. Attracted to Johnstown's potential as a major factory center, Ruff breezed in from Pittsburgh with a pile of money in his pocket. In 1879, he scoured the area around Johnstown for a fresh piece of land. Soon, he found where the real prize was, in the mountains above it. About 15 miles into the hills, just beyond the dam and South Fork Creek was a large empty plot of land. With just 400 feet of elevation gained from Johnstown, it was an idyllic oasis with fresh air and lush green hills. There was a lake, Lake Connemaw, where he could fish and miles of acreage to build vacation homes. 
it would be the perfect place for a getaway, one that he could share with his elite friends. In order to buy the plot, which he'd call the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club of Pittsburgh, Ruff brought a few industry titans into the deal. One of those was Henry Clay Frick, a 29-year-old industrialist and heir to his grandfather's whiskey empire. Frick bought additional shares, and together, the men drew up a charter for the land. They would take possession of the reservoir, Lake Connemaw, and the decaying South Fork Dam. By the end of the year, Ruff and his friends purchased the property and the dam, and held a soft opening for their initial group. With that, the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club was born. Many in Johnstown itself heard that wealthy visitors had arrived and set up camp in the hills, but they didn't know what to make of it. From what they could tell, their blue-collar town was being dwarfed by something far bigger, America's East Coast elite. Sure, these men were bringing in work to the area, but few people had seen their faces or really knew what they were doing up there. The club seemed like an idyllic oasis reserved only for the wealthy. When residents realized the club didn't plan to interact with them, they became resentful. From the outside, it seemed like a boys' club that was above Johnstown's sweat and grime, literally and figuratively. While Johnstown residents dedicated their life to work, they assumed club members were solely dedicated to leisure. And their suspicions were partially right. The club members loved their leisure. Lake Connemaw provided the perfect backdrop for their interests, fishing and boating. And most importantly, the location gave the members an air of privacy. For Benjamin Ruff, privacy was key, as he intended to host some of the most influential men in American business and manufacturing. Andrew Carnegie, who made his fortune in the steel industry, Andrew Mellon, who made his money in banking, and Philander Knox, an attorney and fellow industrialist. Even if they were magnates, most Johnstown residents still had no idea who these men were. And without any public postings of their names, the townspeople had to find some way to satisfy their own curiosity. So they spied. Some residents snuck up along the hillside to get a better look at the club. Of course, this was infuriating for club members. So much so that the club put up a fence around the property and threatened to shoot any person who got too close. According to David McCullough, author of The Johnstown Flood, the war between the so-called poachers and squires had begun. While we don't know the exact details of how this feud played out over the next two years, by the club's more formal opening in 1881, the people of Johnstown had refocused their attention on the dam itself. Rains had become heavier since the initial construction, and from what they could see, water levels had grown to a sizable amount. The townspeople feared the dam's short heights and the water's immense power beyond its walls. They also assumed, despite these issues, the dam was being properly managed. And given the newish owner's enormous wealth, they likely never thought its construction would be a problem. If something was wrong, 
Surely the South Fork Club would fix it, protecting the town below from flooding. At least, so they hoped. Coming up, a tear in the dam's structure goes ignored. Every unsolved crime leaves us with a nagging sense that just one witness, one piece of evidence, one additional lead could change everything. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, revisit some of the most puzzling crimes in history, a vast array of offenses that ran cold for decades. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases pieces together the details of an elusive case. Some eventually had breakthroughs that closed the file, others remain open to this day. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the early 1880s, as fear grew over the South Fork Dam's ability to contain its water, other similar problems were springing up elsewhere too. During those years, storms pounded Johnstown with heavy rain, causing breaks in smaller dams throughout the area. Some, like the Stony Brook Creek floods, frequently forced residents to higher ground. When the rains continued year to year, the community feared increasingly severe disasters. To make matters worse, a rumor began to spread across town. The South Fork Dam, the largest of them all, was about to break. So, in the mid-1880s, one man made it his mission to get details on the dam's safety. Daniel Morell, head of the Cambria Iron Company. The company itself was a major local producer of iron and steel. But in addition to its business dealings, it championed local improvements. It had $50 million invested in Johnstown. And unlike many of his fellow wealthy company heads, Morell lived among Johnstown citizens and spent time getting to know them. His accessibility made him trustworthy. So, when concerns about the dam rose, Morell sent his own head engineer to take a look. And after inspection, the engineer sent word back. It wasn't good. The report emphasized two areas of potential danger. First, there were no discharge pipes to help reduce water. Second, a recent repair had left a large leak. If the dam reached its full height of water, the leak, combined with a lack of drainage, could cause a flood and considerable damage to the town. When Morell got wind of the report, his concerns skyrocketed. He sent this news up the chain to the dam owner, Benjamin Ruff. Morell insisted the dam needed a complete overhaul, but to his surprise, Ruff quickly dismissed the findings. He curtly responded that he didn't believe Morell's findings were of much value and that, quote, you and your people are in no danger from our enterprise. Of course, this dismissal alarmed Morell. It seemed odd that Ruff was so flippant. And yet, rather than sound the alarm about Ruff's response, Morell did the complete opposite. 
he chose not to inform the town of his findings. Instead, he bought a South Fork Club membership under the guise of keeping an eye on the club's activities. Whether or not he used it, especially given the circumstances, is unclear. What we do know, though, is that not much came to pass after that initial exchange with Ruff. In 1885, Daniel Morell died of natural causes. Two years later, in 1887, Benjamin Ruff followed. The entire matter of the dam's condition was buried with the both of them. And the heavy rains continued on. By the late 1880s, residents seemed to have acclimated to the constant rain and small floods. Despite the torrential rainfall, flash floods were treated as an inconvenience more than anything. Like clockwork, when a flood from a nearby dam came down, residents fled to the upper levels of their home. And after the rain was finished, they would dutifully come down and clean the streets. This became so commonplace, townspeople started making jokes about what would happen if the South Fork Dam itself would break and how terrible it would be. But on the morning of May 31st, 1889, John Park, the South Fork Club's resident engineer, didn't find the possibility so funny. He woke up to the sound of the lake roaring to life. When he got out of bed and looked out his window, he saw the river above the dam was flowing much faster than normal, rapidly filling the reservoir. Park made a quick calculation. The water in the dam must now only be two to three feet from the top, a serious escalation. Park needed a closer look, so he headed straight to the dam, where he found Colonel Elias Unger, the new president of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. Unger was arguing with a group of Italian laborers. Unger demanded the laborers dig a new spillway at the western end of the lake. The workmen, however, disagreed. Someone noticed that the iron screens recently installed to prevent fish from leaving the lake had become clogged with debris. Water couldn't even flow out of the existing spillway. They didn't need to dig a whole new thing. The screens just needed to come out. But for some reason, Unger wasn't budging. And given how heated the argument was, it would have been difficult for Park to settle the dispute in time. The water was nearing the brink. They had a few hours at most. He needed to warn the town to flee. Park rushed to South Fork's telegraph tower. He warned them the dam was in critical condition and could very easily give way. The operator on duty sent word to the train depot's telegraph office. South Fork Dam is liable to break. Notify the people of Johnstown to prepare for the worst. It was only 12 in the afternoon. Having warned the town, Park went back, perhaps hoping to settle Unger's debate with the laborers. But when he returned, they were no longer arguing. Instead, they stood in stunned silence. The dam's foundation was giving way. The middle sagged. Water overflowed at its top. All throughout the structure, leaks spewed streams of water. Water in the dam's reservoir crashed violently against the rocks, 
forcing the hole to grow bigger by the minute. And water had already begun flooding the streets. Park saw with great dread that a new spillway would be of no use. At any minute, the dam could totally give way. While Park tried to create a plan at the dam, a message was sent to the editor of the Tribune. Should the dam break, the flood might be the largest the town would ever see. Despite the urgent warning, many residents treated the storm like any other rain. At least at first. They simply went up to their highest floors and waited it out. But as they waited and the hours passed, animals floated by. Debris cascaded downstream and water levels continued to rise. This was different. Something wasn't right. As darkness engulfed the town, they realized this wasn't just any old storm. It was far worse. Perhaps finally seeing that there wasn't an end in sight, many residents ran for the hills, clawing to get to higher ground, and they thought they were safe until the ground trembled beneath them and the gut-wrenching crash rose above the valley. At 3.10 p.m., the entire South Fork Dam collapsed. According to writer David McCullough, water pushed out and down into the valley below with the velocity and depth of Niagara Falls. Hark, watching from above, immediately knew nothing more could be done. Johnstown was about to be totally underwater. Johnstown residents stared out from their rooftops. In the distance, mounds of water swallowed the first few homes. As the flood's waves continued to swallow entire streets, families huddled in fear. Until finally, the wave approached and floodwaters barreled down on top of them, pulling them up by their feet. As homes collapsed, families clung to anything they could to survive. Debris, trees, street signs, anything. Nearby, an even higher wave rushed towards two trains waiting on the tracks. Unsure of what to do, the conductor yelled to passengers, get to the hills. Many passengers scampered out of the trains and toward the mountainside, some making it to safety. It was sheer chaos. As one group of residents floated through town, they reached a structure that hadn't fallen, a stone bridge. There, other residents clung to its arches, including entire families hanging on for dear life. Huddled against the structure, they waited for what seemed like an eternity, praying the storm would die down. They felt safe, at least for a long while. Only problem was a lot of debris had gathered on top of the bridge. Just as the worst of the rains passed, something in the pile sparked and the whole bridge caught fire. Trapped beneath an inferno, many residents died. By the end of the night, unidentified bodies were scattered for miles. One out of every nine people in Johnstown had died, and fires continued to smolder for days. Though the storm had fully subsided by the next morning, it left a chasm of destruction in its wake. Flood water covered the streets for miles. 
All surviving residents could do was make camp on higher ground and survey the damage. In shock, they wondered how their town could be underwater in a matter of 24 hours. And who, if anyone, was to blame? Coming up, as tragedy goes, the South Fork Club disappears. Now, back to the story. For the next few days following the catastrophic Johnstown flood, newspapers in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston covered the disaster, speaking about it like Armageddon. It was the biggest story since that of Abraham Lincoln's murder. All along the East Coast, people read that the dam broke, but no one knew quite how. On the ground, a major relief effort commenced. People flocked from miles away to help with recovery. The American Red Cross sent nurses and doctors to help. Hospital tents and temporary hotels for the homeless were put up, and they began taking surveys of those who needed medical attention. For the next five months, relief staff worked almost all hours of the day, managing the distribution of blankets, clothing, and food. It was one of the organization's first major disasters. As the town tried to make sense of what it would take to rebuild, residents tried to recover from shell shock. Residents had lost family and friends. Surrounded by grief and the remains of their town, it was hard to figure out what to do next. How to get the money to rebuild, for one. And how to make sure such a tragedy didn't happen again. Slowly, whispers about possible causes spread throughout the town. Could it just have been a horrible natural disaster? Was it truly just a worn-out dam? Soon, talk turned towards members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. As the dust settled after the floods, no one knew their whereabouts. But there were stories, mostly about members intentionally disappearing right as the dam collapsed. One resident who worked up in South Fork recalled hearing a club member settling up his debts during the collapse, then immediately vanishing. This seemed like a bold move for the club's men. At a time when supplies were low and able-bodied men were few, the South Fork club members had up and left in the middle of the night without a trace, as if they were trying to avoid helping. Perhaps drawing on their earlier resentment, the townspeople's rage grew. In the days after the flood, they stormed the South Fork Club, looking for anyone who may still be there. Enraged, they smashed windows and stormed the cottages. To their dismay, however, they didn't find anyone, only an empty clubhouse and dry land. The mob could do nothing else except head back down the valley. And in the sea of rubble, it was clear that Johnstown was in desperate need of answers. Why exactly did the dam break? And who was at fault? While coroner's investigations into a number of casualties were immediately opened by at least two county courts, within the town, assumptions were already being made by residents. As far as they were concerned... The dam broke because of the wealthy men who neglected repairs. 
Residents even wondered if somehow this was a form of revenge. After all, before the floods began, the club's members had been so angry at townspeople for sneaking up to the club. It was almost like there was an unofficial feud between the two sides, one the club members wanted to come to an end. No one knew for sure, but newspapers still circulated the residents' opinion, and soon the words criminal negligence entered the conversation. Flood victims publicly proclaimed that the owners of the dam were culpable, meaning the South Fork Club. Since they hadn't secured the dam, they were responsible for life and property. Finally, on June 7, 1889, a week after the flood, a coroner's jury from Westmoreland County reached a formal verdict for the cause of the flood. The South Fork's dam break had caused the mass casualties in Johnstown. But the court stopped short of holding the club legally liable. Newspaper headlines, however, continued to condemn the club, even escalating the conversation. A New York Times headline called it an engineering crime, the dam of inferior construction. However, most articles stopped short of mentioning any specific club members by name. Meanwhile, residents began to understand more about the structural issues of the dam. In the June 15th issue of the Engineering News, they learned that the dam's crest was lowered and its middle sagged, two erosions that should have been corrected by an owner with tons of money. So, armed with new structural knowledge and fed up with a lack of oversight from the government, the town took matters into their own hands. They would sue the club themselves. After raising money to hire two top attorneys for their case, John Linton and Horace Rose, Johnstown was ready to pursue financial compensation. Linton and Rose got to work. They assumed that if they could prove the South Fork Club had acted negligently, they'd have a big payday for the residents. It's unclear, however, exactly what kind of information the lawyers had. For example, we don't know if Linton and Rose knew about the exchange between Cambria Iron Chief Daniel Morell and former club owner Benjamin Ruff, the one about the dam's issues dismissed by Ruff a few years before it broke. If they had, it's likely they might have been able to build a stronger case, pointing out that Ruff ignored warning signs. But regardless, they soon ran into a problem greater than just the question of basic liability. They'd based their suit on the assumption that if they won, the club had plenty of money to pay out. But when Linton and Rose looked at the South Fork's financial statements, the numbers told a different story. The club was only worth about $35,000, a small sum in relation to how wealthy it looked from the outside, especially in comparison to the multi-million dollar fortunes of its members. And there was still an outstanding mortgage on the land they bought. Essentially, the club was dead broke. To many Johnstown residents, this didn't make much sense. How was the club so short on cash with all the wealthy members? The only possible explanation anyone could come up with was that the club had anticipated the disaster and even subsequent lawsuits 
and pulled their money out on purpose. But they had no way to prove it. Worse still was the response from the club's lawyers. The attorneys were adept at deflecting liability and argued that if the club was sued, only the stock could be held liable, if any liability about the disaster could be found at all. This meant two things. For one, the townspeople couldn't sue members directly and therefore had no access to their individual wealth. And second, even if the townspeople did win their suit, all they'd get in return was a worthless piece of stock. In light of this, Rose and Linton realized there was a slim chance at winning. After a few years of litigating, they urged their clients to drop the suit. Residents were horrified. This seemed too unreal. And while there was a chance the club members were oblivious to their plight, others believed the response was just plain cruel. It seemed impossible that not a single business magnate was required to help the victims. Ultimately, that was the result. The club was never held legally responsible for the disaster. No one was ordered to pay anything. The victims in Johnstown were left infuriated with deep-rooted bitterness and resentment that would carry on for generations. There were too many unanswered questions and too many lost souls. After final estimates came in, the death toll was astounding. Over 2,200 people died. Just in the storm alone, 99 entire families perished including 396 children under 10 years old. There was an estimated $17 million in property damage and more than another 750 people dead who were simply never identified. Three years later, in May of 1892, residents met at the Johnstown Grandview Cemetery burial grounds to hold a memorial for the unidentified victims. For some, it served as a landmark for peace. For others, a reminder of possible corruption and neglect. Because the glaring truth was that, while some South Fork Club members donated small amounts of their time and money, they were never made to answer for the events of that terrible day. As residents put their lives back together over the years, many felt the elusive group that lived above the dam never really tried to repair the harm the town experienced. And try as they might to piece together the mystery behind what really happened, the people of Johnstown could never quite crack it. Next week, we'll examine three different conspiracy theories that stemmed from the Johnstown tragedy and the key players that might have caused it. Like conspiracy theory number one, that the Johnstown flood was really an act of God designed to punish the town. Or conspiracy theory number two, that a rivalry between Andrew Carnegie and the Cambria Iron Company might have led to the flood. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, that the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club was negligent and purposefully covered up their irresponsibility when it came to the dam's upkeep. To this day, No one has been held legally responsible, and the Johnstown Flood is still considered to be one of the deadliest disasters in American history. 
which makes it all the more important that even though it's over a hundred years later, we try to figure out exactly who was at fault and why. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on this topic, we found the Johnstown Flood, the incredible story behind one of the most devastating disasters America has ever known, by David McCullough, particularly helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Drew Dougal, edited by Stacey Nemec and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Solved or unsolved, you won't know which until the very end. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify.